Hi, and welcome to One Great History, the podcast all about the great and not-so-great parts of Winnipeg history. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by our friend and producer, Nick. That's what we're made of. Wait, what was the slogan? <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say we're going to have to change the name of the podcast <laughs> to, yes. yeah. Made of the... Made from, made from what's real. Made from what's real. Made I, from I, what's history. <laughs> new name of the podcast at time of recording um economic development winnipeg has just released their new slogan for the city the province whatever yeah and, and it sounds like we're like uh jen said a whole foods yeah yeah it sounds like we're salad dressing like yeah. <laughs> it sounds like they're like rolling it out pretty quick too like there are already like signs going up Ugh. so yeah the podcast name will be something new and confusing <laughs> <laughs> that will not make sense made from what's podcast <laughs> I like that. It tells you nothing. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to derail things. But... No, no, it's fine. I feel like we all talked about it. the moment we all came into your house. Everyone was like, what did you think of the new name? I was actually saving it. I was hoping no, you had... I was saving it too. <laughs> I saw it and I was like, I hope Alex didn't see this I, so we could talk about it. I was hoping it. you hadn't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, of course, we both have. Yeah. <laughs> Both need to get off the Winnipeg subreddit. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Well, new city, I it's, guess. New I city, know. new slogan. It's fine, I guess. <laughs> we're big fans. Yeah. Um, we're not. Our whole episode today is not going to be about Winnipeg's names over the years. Our taglines. Don't worry. I think we've only had three that we know of. Anyway. Surprise! I prepared a whole episode no. on Winnipeg names. No, I didn't. I wish. <laughs> Uh, no, we're being timely for the first and quite possibly only the last time yeah. in <laughs> podcast history and that we're going to do a sort of pride-based episode for June. Yeah. Which I'm pretty excited about. We're going to do a like little romp through uh, the gay hotspots and bars of the 1970s. Ooh. Yeah. We did like a little like New Year's pub crawl. Yeah. We're kind of doing that. Fun. Yeah. So... Off the top, I should say there's, like, a lot of really interesting aspects to, like, queer history in Manitoba. We're just zeroing in on one specific thing, so we're not doing one big episode. Right. So we can, you know, have other episodes down the road on other things. Yeah. Um, initially, this episode was going to be on Club 654. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, first official gay bar in Winnipeg. Um, and it became, like, a research black hole for me. I remember you working on it and sort of going a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, I've been working on this since... Uh, last year yeah oh jeez. Wow. and it's been like not steadily i've done other things but there's yeah. been a lot of like i'm gonna email this archive and see what they have and they would say we've had nothing have you checked this archive i would email archive number two and they'd say have you checked archive number one right and it's like well okay so no one knows anything about club 654 although if you're listening and you do please let me know i was going insane over this for about four months yeah and driving Alex, I think, crazy with my complaints about <laughs> it's it. It's fine. <laughs> it's every podcast episode we do. It is. Yeah. So um, we're going to be looking at these sort of like official gay hotspots in the 1970s. And what I mean here is places that are like explicitly operating as gay bars. Because right. obviously there's been kind of like a queer culture in Winnipeg for many, many years. But they just didn't have official spots or names. Right. 
And there's actually been like a moderately decent amount of research done into queer history in Winnipeg. Oh. Yeah, this is surprising. Leg- legitimately surprising. Yes. So we're going to do my favorite thing, historiography. No, <laughs> Sabrina, I'm leaving. We're going to talk about sources. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have the Manitoba Gay and Lesbian Archives at the University of Manitoba. Yeah. And in the 1990s, they did a whole oral history project where they talk to gay people in Manitoba about their experiences over the years. Super cool. So this has led to um, an article where the girls of the Pansy Parade and a book called Prairie Fairies, both by uh, Valerie Kornick. And these are both pretty instrumental to this episode. And there's also um, an episode of the podcast Secret Life of Canada about queer culture in Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. I listened to that one. It's a fun one because they're not from here. So they say Portage Portage. (laughs) One of those classics. (laughs) But there are also gaps in this research, and I think it's probably an important thing to bring up up front. Um, it was the 80s and 90s at the time of all of this being conducted, and the oral histories managed to find mostly white, cisgender, gay men who are willing to talk. Right. Which tracks, because they're the ones that are probably in the most secure position to talk about their experiences. Mm-hmm. I they're, mean, like, relatively speaking. Yeah, guess, compared yeah. to, like, say, like, an indigenous queer woman right. who might have a harder time being out publicly, yeah. especially in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot on uh, lesbians, bisexual people, trans people, or two-spirit people in those collections. Okay. Just how it is. So we're mostly focusing on gays and lesbians in Manitoba because that is the research that is available to us. Yeah. Everyone else existed at every other point in history also. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, like, there were lots of reasons why people wouldn't have been comfortable coming out. Um, Yeah. Gay sex wasn't decriminalized in Canada until 1969. Oof. Yeah. Um, Actually earlier than I might have expected yeah this was i think it would have been a pierre trudeau thing where it was like the government has no place in the bedrooms of the nation i don't know if you remember hearing that in school at any point no it came up in one of my canadian history courses in university i didn't do canadian history (sighs) yeah that would do it (laughs) yeah um yeah and then like prior to this you could just be arrested for it um men were more likely to be arrested women were more likely to be institutionalized oh right so there is a number of risks to being publicly out Mm mm-hmm there's all this sort of, like, it's the addict of the time stuff, too, but that's not necessarily true because there's been pushbacks against, like, discrimination against gay people across mm-hmm. history, essentially. There was a, like, riot in 1725 in London when police tried to raid, like, a known gay hotspot. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, but coming sort of back to Winnipeg, we share a lot of the same sort of practices and like sentiments as most of north america so we're not the friendliest place to gay people across the 19th century and Mm -hmm. 20th century but by the late 1970s there is a gay liberation when it's picking up steam Mm -hmm. and that reaches winnipeg as well and that's kind of where we're going to be starting this today but thanks to those oral histories we do actually know where gay people would have gone oh prior to the 1970s so the like hot spots for like gay hangouts this would have been probably mostly like cruising right um would have been the legislature grounds behind them I think they talk about that in that Secret Life of Canada. They episode. do. It's hey. the hill. Right. Is what they call it. And then um, along Waterfront Drive today near the Alexander Docks. Oh. And then also in uh, Chinese bathhouses and restaurants. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, right? there was in um, where the Girls of the Pansy Parade, there was some talk about like, because Chinese restaurants and bathhouses were so heavily scrutinized by the police, there was yeah. some like layer of protection for both of them if they watched each other's backs. Right. I guess almost sort of an unspoken understanding. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, they'd also go to Winnipeg Beach. Oh. Yeah, you talked about uh, people going in drag, I think, in your episode yes. of Winnipeg Beach. Yeah. Yeah. So they would often take the train out to Winnipeg Beach and occasionally to Grand Beach for the day. Huh. Yeah. So um, I have 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have a lot of notes that go back a while. Okay. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on in the 1970s in Winnipeg and in the 1980s as well. In 1984, um, a writer, Jane Rule, comes to Winnipeg to write about the queer scene. Oh, She is a writer for The Body Politic, which is a sort of queer activism magazine out in Toronto. Okay. Rule is a Canadian author. She wrote Desert of the Heart in 1964. It's a book that features a lesbian romance. And the book comes out five years before being gay is decriminalized, essentially. So oh, the wow. book causes a big stir. And as Rule put it, she became the only lesbian in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) So she winds up writing articles for the body politic about being gay. And then they send her out to Winnipeg to write about what it's like out here. Interesting. And what Rule finds out when she comes here is probably not a huge surprise. It's that Winnipeg is a divided city. Right. And you'll hear this in every thing we talk about in Winnipeg, probably. Gender, class, race, all sorts of things are keeping the community kind of separated. Um, Rule described it as, Many people active in Winnipeg's gay community are caught in conflicting loyalties and moralities. It is a very conservative, very church city. But, against all odds, Winnipeg remained a livable city for gay people. Hmm. More than you actually probably might expect. There was a gay city in the 80s, or gay center in the 80s that she thought was maybe the best in Canada. Hmm. And Rule's theory is that it was the sense of community here. Interesting. That sort of fostered that. And it was the commitment of Winnipeggers to create these spaces for each other, essentially. And we can see this going back even before, like, Club 654 opened. Because they would sort of go hang out in beverage rooms and bars. Yeah. And, excitingly, I have oral histories to play for part of this. I don't have many. Yeah. Because most of them are focused kind of on the, like, 1940s and 50s, not the topic for the episode. But there's a couple that talk about some early things in this episode. So we're going to hear uh, Ted Patterson. He was a dancer with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet oh. talking about some of the bars he frequented. Cool. Were there the ones in particular? Uh, yeah, sure. The uh, Marlboro Hotel was probably throughout. <laughs> I don't know whether it still is now, but I know certainly for a long period of time, the Marlboro was consistently known as a gay watering spot. C- CP Hotel, the, Fort, the uh, Royal Alec, to a slight degree, but because it was far removed from the center of town, it wasn't as popular. That's the lounge in there as well? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm trying to remember if it was the lounge. It might have been, at later years, I can remember the lounge being kind of a place to go, but I can't remember if it had a beer parlor of its own, and I'm sure it must have. Every railroad hotel had a beer parlor, <laughs> you know, for damn sure. So there must have been one there. And the uh, Fort Gary... I, the same thing there. I can remember going into the lounge there, which was very elegant. And you always got dressed, or dressed up a little bit to go into the lounge anyway. But I can't remember a beer parlor there, and yet I'm sure they must have had one. And then downtown, the Marlboro was handy because it was just off Portage Avenue. And yet it was, wasn't right on Portage, so it meant a little uh, kind of privacy of going there. You know, it wasn't out in the open as much. Uh, there was a couple of other hotels, the Regis, uh, on and off, at one point, the St. Charles, which was a bit of a dive, but, uh, and it was kind of, uh, it was a little touchy there, and it, that was later, I guess, in the 1970s, late 60s, 70s, and it was kind of dicey going in there, it was a little, not necessarily safe. So those are some of the bars people would go hang out in. I had no idea that some of those were, like, gay hangouts. No, because some of them are still, like, kind of around to a certain extent. Yeah. The buildings are. I the Marlboro's still there. Yeah. yeah. The St. Charles building is there. Okay. Not open at the moment. Yeah. That's interesting, too, that he talks about, like, 
oh, there was a little more privacy going to this place. So, like, that was still a bit of a concern. Yeah, because I also, like, your job would have been at risk or yeah. your social life would have been at risk if someone, like, sees you coming out of, like, a gay bar, right? right? So, like, even if you feel comfortable once you're inside. The getting in and out is kind of tricky, so being yeah. off of a main strip is pretty convenient. Was it St. Charles? Yeah, um, that's funny that it was in Capote. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is standing right outside and Capote was gay. I wonder if that was like a subtle nod, like even though it's set in Chicago. I would be surprised if anyone from the movie knew that, but it's a fun that's little connection true. that yeah. we can make. <laughs> so we that, can say it's true. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm the expert here. <laughs> we huh. know what we're talking about and we never lie. <laughs> So there's also um, a bar called Mardi Gras that was pretty popular. Oh, that sounds fun. It was a New Orleans-themed restaurant on Portage Avenue. Of course. Uh, then there's the St. Regis and the Silver Slipper. And it's at the Mardi Gras that uh, Chris Vogel meets his longtime partner and husband, Richard North, on Vogel's first week in the city. Oh. They're going to come up a few more times. There's kind of a love story going on in this, which is very exciting. Aww. Yeah. So stay tuned on that front. They'll come back later. But the trick with all of this is you have to be kind of in the know to find these places. Right. So, like, when I was listening to some of the oral histories, different people had a different memory of where the big bar was. Other people talked about the Mardi Gras being the big one, whereas Ted Patterson talks about the Marlboro. Yeah. So everyone kind of had a different idea of where was the place to go, which means that not everyone knew there were places to go at all. When you listen to some of the ones from women, notably, there's less awareness of spaces that exist for them. So... I've told you this before, but my grandma was right, openly, yes. openly lesbian yeah. towards, like, the later years of her life. Like, I guess, like, in the 70s yeah. and 80s. Um, and, like, lived with a woman. Yeah. But I don't remember ever hearing about, like, places that she would have gone. Like, I think it was mostly just, like, hanging out at home yeah. in, like, a regular kind of domestic totally. partnership. Yeah. So there's one interview I listened to by uh, Ruth Sells where it's mostly about her experience with her long-term partner. And, like, the house parties that go yeah. to and that's where they meet people. It was a lot more, like private parties as opposed to public spaces and cells and hers sort of complains about the lack of like spaces for them to go in public which isn't strictly true there was one like lesbian bar called the mount royal that was also kind of like a biker bar so you had to be you had to be a little tough to go in there i guess so if you're like not that kind of person yeah if you're not like a person that wants to hang out in a biker bar then then you're kind of sol yeah exactly and there's also some issues with um sort of what the popular bar being was shifting because Mm -hmm. management didn't always like the gay clientele. Oh. So uh, Ted Patterson talks a bit about that as well. That was another thing, too. You see, management at various different hotels would, I suppose, change their mind about it, and then they would decide or discover that when they threw out the gays or made it difficult for them, they lost business. So they would come back because, I mean, gays are always known also as pretty good drinkers, too. (laughs) So it came down to a monetary situation, and they would accept it. Uh, same, I think, with uh, the Mardi Gras. The Mardi Gras, a couple of times, tried to shut out all the gays from going there. And the moment they did that, they just lost money right, left, and center. And then they finally, bit by bit, you know, people started to go back again, and then it turned into... It was almost... I'm sure that there were nights when I was in the Mardi Gras and Childs, and that it was almost 100% gay. Yeah, so I guess, uh, I mean, that that sounds frustrating to, like, not be able to know, like, from week to week. Where the space is that you can go with your friends, right? Yeah. Not a great commercial idea to be like, hey, all of these regular people. <laughs> hey, all of our regulars, get out. Get out. And then, like, oh, no, we've lost all of our regulars. 
<laughs> now we're not making money. How did this happen? Yeah. So there's not like any consistency necessarily in where you can go. Yeah. But a lot of people talk about, you know, going to these bars and making friends and people turning up in drag and all kinds of stuff like mm. that. There's lots of like fun stories about the bars. And the bars would close and everyone would go to a house party and they'd cram like oh, fun. many, many people into <laughs> someone's like little apartment downtown. Right. And they'd like roll up the carpet and everything. <laughs> what? what? To, so they don't get the carpet dirty. Oh. I bet their downstairs neighbors loved that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little rowdy. It sounds pretty fun. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As someone that likes a party. I would be the downstairs neighbor who's like, did they take the carpet up before they started dancing? Why is yeah. it so loud? But because there's so much, like, insecurity and also, like, they're not necessarily safe spaces. People would come in and try right. and harass them all the time. There were still people going in to, like, pick fights. There is a desire for a space just for gay people. Hmm. Yeah. And out of this comes a Club 654, which is my research black hole that right. I encountered. So, so did we find a little bit about it? A teensy-weensy little bit. Okay. So, um... What I know is that it would have opened sometime in the 1970s, and it was closed by 1984. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's it? <laughs> uh, it was on 654 Aaron Street. Okay. It was not like a bar, like a nightclub. It was like a hangout space, so you would go there and like play games. Oh, nice. Yeah, they didn't have a liquor license. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because you'd have to apply to the government for those, and they right. were not necessarily willing to give those out. Huh. Um. So the oral histories of Club 64 that I can find talk about it being too public and too isolated. It's a little out of the way. Mm. The building is pretty easy to find. So it wasn't a safe spot specifically for women. So the clientele is mostly men. Oh, interesting. And um, the outside of the club wasn't entirely safe. Um, one of the fun things, or not fun things, but one of the things I did manage to find out, thanks to a very kind person on Reddit, is that sometime in the 1970s, they actually put out a publication on homophobic assaults in Winnipeg to keep mm -hmm. track of where the dangerous spaces were, and Club 64 was among them. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, like, there's a lot of, like, research and publications going on to keep track of where is and is not safe. Right. I mean, I guess if somewhere is explicitly a, a gay bar or a, a gay hangout, yeah. then, you know, someone who's actively homophobic might go there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... I know that it has to have closed by 1984 because it doesn't appear in a gay and lesbian directory from mm. that year. That's the only reason I know that's when it would have been closed by. But I think it must have been way earlier. Right. Because it doesn't really come up after a certain point. Like, mid-70s doesn't seem to exist. Yeah. Is that the same one that I had seen? That little yes. pamphlet? The one with the uh, Lithium, a depression cafe inside <laughs> of it. Oh, I'd love to go to Lithium, a depression cafe. Yeah. It also had baked expectations in it. Oh, it I, did. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really nice. It was also cool because it's a publication from the 80s, but it has what buildings are and are not wheelchair accessible and what, like, right. impediments there might be to, like, enter the building. I was reading it today, and there's stuff like, it has one step, it has two steps, like, here's how you get in, here's how you get out. Like, huh. yeah. Yeah. I guess just, like, if you start being mindful. Yeah, and then everyone know. else kind of gets involved, right? Yeah. So, Club 64 doesn't really go over super well. It's isolated. There's not a lot of women so while they're at Club 64, 64, um, plans are hatched to create a similar social club that would have a liquor license. This is key. Okay. And it would allow people to drink and dance and socialize. And it would be notably membership only and private. Oh, so like whatever rando off the street can't just come in and exactly. harass people. Exactly. So out of this comes happenings. Oh. Which, as a uh, historian and researcher, awful, awful name for a club. <laughs> Do you know where <laughs> to look up the word happenings? <laughs> Oh, no. This drove me insane yeah. as well. Um, so the desire for happenings comes out of 
um, a desperate need at the time to have a place all our own, a place in an atmosphere completely gay where we could dance with our lovers, hold hands with our lovers, communicate with our friends, and be ourselves without the hostility we would surely get elsewhere. Nice. So they receive its official uh, charter of incorporation as a group in 1973 under the name Mutual Friendship Society. And there is some initial skepticism in Winnipeg that this would ever work out. Like, a gay-only space? No way. We're not going right. to get this off the ground. <laughs> gay people don't have money. money. Well, even within the community, they're like, there's no way this is going to get any legs. Oh, interesting. Like, it's kind of a big step when there's no official space. Yeah. Who's going to pay to be a member? Mm-hmm. We're a cheap city. <laughs> That's, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> but people were working on this pretty steadily from 1969 until it got the charter. Wow. It's like, this was a long process. And they did a fundraising through socials at the time. <laughs> Classic Manitoban yep. way. And there was a like pretty considerate e- or considerable effort at the time to get Winnipeg's lesbian community involved. Mm-hmm. The group was started by gay men who realized that they couldn't get this off the ground without women involved. Mm-hmm. So they actually send um, George Moore, one of the group's tre- uh, the group's treasurer, to the Mount Royal to try and talk to the women there. And apparently. <laughs> People have been told in advance that more was coming, so there was like a woman waiting to bring him to the right person to talk to, who was named Kathy. That is fascinating. Like there's just like a meeting between the city's gay men and the city's <laughs> lesbians. Yeah. Yes, and then he basically is like, "You should like come to our socials," and they work it out. But more remembered that he had to have an escort to get to the bathroom because women were like, "You're not gonna be safe here." Oh, because the there were bikers there, right? Who weren't gonna be super nice to like. A gay guy walking in. Interesting. So yeah, there was like some kind of protective element to him coming in. Huh. It sounds like a very fascinating meeting. Yeah. Um, the interview with George Moore was done over the phone, so not all of the audio is playable. I've got something that he says later though. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So they recruit gay men and gay women to come out to these socials, and they get pretty good turnouts. And um, there was some trickery to organizing these socials at the time. Okay. And I actually have George. Should we explain what a social is? Oh. I mean, probably most people listening know. I think it's probably mostly Manitobans. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know, a social is basically a wedding fundraiser mm-hmm. where you pay like, I mean, now like $10 for a ticket and you go and have very cheap drinks and spend all of your money on a silent auction. Yes. Yeah. You spend a whole bunch of money on raffle tickets and that's your way of sort of donating money to the couple's wedding. Yeah. Which you might not be invited to, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> no, you might you might not even know the people. It's a nice, fun evening out. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely crashed a few socials in my day. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I feel like this is getting becoming a hotter and hotter take. I like a social. I know you do. <laughs> oh. I talk about it a lot. I think you specifically told me how excited you were your first, like, your first social, like, post-COVID. Oh, it was so nice. <laughs> I didn't win anything at the silent auction this time, though. Oh, too bad. It is what it is. Yeah. But yeah, they're like a community thing that happens in Manitoba. They start around the 1970s. I'm not super clear on the history of the social. Mm -hmm. But um, George Moore talks a bit about uh, how they got the socials off the ground. Uh, uh, Back then, the only way that you could hold a social was by somebody getting married. And we had more gays marrying the same people over and over. (laughs) Because that was, you know, you... Repetitiously, that's that's what you did. You 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 applied for a, a, a license to hold a social, and and it was because and you had to name who was getting married and who, who was being put on for. But I don't remember anybody else putting on socials at that. There, there were some pretty wild halls that we got into too. I can remember one in 
people were going to those early socials? Oh, quite a few. I I don't remember numbers, but uh, um, I I would say probably a couple hundred anyway. So yeah, it was basically repeated wedding socials for the same people over and over again, just in different halls around the city. That's so fun. And like, I wonder, I'd, I'd love to like, I'd love to know more about that because I have so many questions. No, I know, like, right? Was it people who were legitimately going to get married at some point? Were they no. just pretend people? Yeah, I think they were real people, but they weren't ever going to get married. Okay. Because <laughs> you had to pretend to be a couple or pretend that you right. were a couple to get the liquor license for it so you had to like list people to be like so-and-so is marrying so-and-so and that's who the social is for yeah and they would advertise it in the papers huh. i would have found the ads if i knew what anyone's name was yeah yeah i wonder if there were like ones over and over again with the same names maybe it's a fascinating way to like secretly raise money though. and that might be your way to find them like yeah you're like oh hey it's another social for, i know like, these people yeah <laughs> yeah so this is to like raise money to get the group off the ground. They have to be they have to receive a charter as a group to get their liquor license. Okay. This is a whole like legal process I don't entirely understand and I don't know if it's still done anymore. But once they get their charter, they stop holding wedding socials. They just hold like fundraising events mm -hmm. cuz they can get a permit and rent a hall. Nice. Before it's all like surreptitious. Yeah. But um their application for a charter was controversial. Um Mostly because it was a group of gay people applying for it. Right. Um, the Attorney General Al Mackling said such groups ought not to be clothed the same rights and responsibilities as other groups. <sighs> so after this happens and their charter gets turned down, oh, they get denied the first go round. Really? Uh, is there like a reason given or? No. Oh. Uh, they seek legal advice. Interesting. Okay. Um, there is an initial issue at first where one... The president of, like, Happenings at the time had some, like, morality offense on his, like, rap sheet. Okay. I mean, yeah. It's just because he was gay. Right. Yeah. So they had to, like, replace him as the president before they could mm. apply again because that got them knocked off the first time. Yeah. And then when they seek legal advice, it turns into this big media storm. And it's kind of like a debate mm -hmm. in the country at the time about, like, if they should not be allowed to be a group, what rights you have as, wow. like, a gay group, essentially. But what happens ultimately is that Happenings lawyers arrange a sort of like back channel deal with three stipulations mm -hmm. that Happenings changes its name to the Mutual Friendship Society. Okay. The group abstained from political activism. Oh. And they don't publicize when they get their charter. Hmm. It's essentially an NDA. Right. <laughs> which is not ideal. Well, not if you want to get the club off the ground, no. No. But publicizing is different than just telling people right yeah i guess you can like do a little word of mouth campaign which is how most of the stuff would have been getting around right. anyway so they get the charter mm -hmm. they get off the ground and then they start to apply for their liquor permit which is also not without its challenges uh george moore talked a bit about getting the liquor permit because he was a part of that process we went before the liquor board and it's thoroughly obvious and uh, from our constitution and everything that we were a gay club and I was scared silly personally uh, because as my job at that point was a municipal administrator and I, was, I dealt with an awful lot of lawyers who were, which was what the board was made up of. But I was scared of, of appearing before this thing, but I knew I had to do it. So we went. They asked us three simple questions. And that was it and approved it. Mm. And, uh, I, I think they... We, we had 
by the morality squad and thanks to the Winnipeg City Police. They had come to my home to, to police officers and asked a bunch of questions. And, uh, they searched out our our uh, records to see if there was any, any charges or anything against, which of course there weren't. And uh, we went up before the liquor board and like I said, there were three simple questions that they asked us and, and that was it. It was over and look, the license had been approved. Hmm. That's funny that the initial charter was so much harder to get than yeah. the liquor license. But also they sent the police to his house. Yeah. He doesn't say what the questions are, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> and also, he seems so nonchalant about like, yeah, the police came to my house. <laughs> and yeah. then they asked questions and it was done. I feel like the police coming to your house is actually kind of like scary. That is. It's a weird process. That's a weird way to do it. Like the morality squad is involved in all of this. Like, yeah. It's a bigger deal than it would normally take to get a liquor license. Yeah. How long did we have, like, morality police? I have no idea. It's a good question. Yeah. Something to look up for another day. Yeah. <laughs> another research question for <laughs> us. So once they get the license and they can start renting halls, they begin to fundraise for a permanent location. But this time they can have official socials. Mm-hmm. They have a borscht and beer night. Nice. They have bowling leagues. And eventually they rent an old synagogue on Manitoba Avenue. I just love how Manitoban all of this is. <laughs> The beer and borscht night? We're going to have a beer and borscht night. We're going to have wedding socials. <laughs> they do drag shows, too. Okay. Yeah. But it's all very Manitoban. Yeah. So privacy is pretty key with happening. So the membership list is private. It's actually never archived. Wow. So we don't know how many members they have. Hmm. Um, and only members are allowed into the club. So you can't bring in guests. No straight people allowed at all. Hmm. And this was a real appeal for a lot of people who had kind of had to, like, sneak around. You could right. go into this club and it was kind of a safe space for them. Mm-hmm. So Mostly Happenings is a bar. So the group is called Mutual Friends Society. The bar is called Happening Social Club. Okay. Just to be clear, because yeah. <laughs> it's confusing. Um, there's like dancing on Saturdays. They hold Sunday brunches, Christmas dinners. They organize VD clinics when there's a syphilis outbreak in the city. Hmm. So there's some like community outreach stuff going on. Yeah. But it's not all idyllic. There's no sign on the door. There's security guards outside at all times. Mm-hmm. The windows are bulletproof. Oh, wow. There's steel bars just in case. Huh. Um, in a free press interview, one man recalled being at happenings and being told to stay inside because there were men with axes outside, like, looking to pick a fight. Jesus. So it's not safe, exactly, but it's better than what was there before. And if you parked outside, your windows would probably be smashed in your car. Wow. So you'd park, like, down the road and then come around. Yeah. And what we know of the membership at the time is that it seems to have been a fairly equal distribution of men and women just Hmm. based on like what people recall of it yeah not to say memory is like 100 percent accurate here right the club would later move to a sherbrooke avenue and it's around until about 2004 Hmm. at the time it would have been one of the oldest queer clubs in north america right did it remain like a members only club i think it opened up a bit more it's harder to find stuff a bit more recently yeah is my experience i found one source saying that happenings closed in 2009 as well but the free press reports are closing in 2004 okay so I don't know. Sometimes we get dates a little fuzzy and history is confusing. Yep. Sometimes there are typos. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen. Um, but because Happenings is so private and because they can't do any advocacy, it leads to some pushback in Winnipeg, hmm. mostly among um, sort of more activist groups. Mm-hmm. And what I probably should make clear here is that for a lot of Winnipeggers, having just a space would have been a huge novelty that people wouldn't have thought possible like 15 years beforehand. Yeah. Um. 
because your options before this are like you go to a bar where you get kicked out whenever management changes their mind, a bathhouse or outdoor areas that are very unsafe to be in. Yeah. Because other people know where those spots are and they'll go to pick fights. Yeah. Also not terribly practical in no. a city where it's winter eight months of the year. No. Um, there's an interview a little bit later on with uh, Richard North about like different like queer spots in the city. And they're talking about going to like the legend going outside to cruise. And he goes, it was a stupid system, actually. <laughs> So this private space is a huge step, but it's also the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff in the way of like gay liberation coming out across North America. Right. So like the Stonewall riots happen in New York in 1969. There's, um, it's the year that same sex activity is made legal in Canada. There's gay rights protests across Canada mm-hmm. in Ontario and BC. The body politic, that magazine that Jane Rule wrote for starts publishing in 1971. So it seems like there's sort of more hope on the horizon than there might have been before. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people now that are like, oh, we could ask for more. We can fight for more than just like a bar on Manitoba Avenue. That- okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With bulletproof glass on the windows. Yeah. And you can make it kind of easy like, oh, it's young versus old. But Happenings had a pretty large crew of mm-hmm. young and old people. It was like the main gay spot for everyone. Yeah. There weren't many options in Winnipeg well, yeah. also. So... The more activist-centered groups tended to be students who were motivated more by, like, leftist politics than anything else. And out of this, we get the Gays for Equality. Okay. They are formed around the same time that Happenings is wrapped up in their charter debate. It is the Campus Gay Club at first formed at the University of Manitoba. It's organized by a student, Phil Graham, uh, counselor, Dr. Gordon, uh, Dr. Gordon Toombs, and the campus chaplain, Dr. M. Watts. Oh. They rent a room, they advertise in the school paper as happening social club okay and they get around 30 to 70 people yeah which is a wildly inconsistent number yeah <laughs> like did no one count i don't know um but among them are chris vogel and richard north okay there they are again um so north was a winnipeg resident vogel had moved from Regina, mm-hmm. and um vogel joined the group and this is a quote from an interview he did with the author of prairie fairies i wouldn't have done a damn thing but for him but because i was so stuck on him i would have done anything he wanted <laughs> and that's why he joins the group that's i, I love that <laughs> it's very very cute i can relate very heavily to yeah. that <laughs> so both men get involved they start postering for the group and they both become like major spearheads in the gay rights movement in manitoba wow yeah so the group's name is changed to Gays for Equality in 1974, and it's also in 1974 that Vogel and North get married. Oh, wow. Not officially, well. mind you, because gay marriage isn't legalized in Canada until 2005. Mm-hmm. So they hold a ceremony in a Unitarian church a few days before Valentine's Day of that year. Um, and for what it's worth here, they're still together. They're still a couple to Aww. this day. Yeah, I know. That's very sweet. But the marriage is partially because... They're very in love with each other, clearly. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of an activist theater thing. It's right. a protest as much as it is like a declaration of their love for each other. Yeah. So um, they get widespread media coverage for this. It becomes a huge talking point. They're interviewed on CBC's As It Happens. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like a little bit of a sensation. Their union is registered as a church ceremony, but it's not recognized by the eternal attorney general as like an official union. Right. So... It never actually gets off the ground as anything other than, like, a stunt, essentially. Mm -hmm. And actually, as of around 2020, they were still trying to get that union recognized by the government. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Still rejected. What? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Weird. 
And there are skeptics both from the gay community and the straight community on whether or not this marriage is like legit or a good thing. Hmm. Some people in the queer community were like, this is just a stunt. Why do we need a straight person to tell us that we need marriage? Yeah. One of those things. There's pushback on both sides. But um, 10 years later, Vogel and North hold a 10-year anniversary dinner where they raise $20,000 for <laughs> a um, community center. Oh, yeah. that's really lovely. It's very, very nice. Uh, most of their money goes to the Gay and Lesbian Legal Defense Fund, which is sponsored mm. by the Gays for Equality group. Cool. Yeah. But we're going to go back to the Gays for Equality starting point now. I just okay. thought it was a fun little detour into a love story there. Yes, that's sweet. <laughs> um, it took some time for the group to take off. People were or sort of skeptical of it because being an activist sort of draws attention to you, which not everyone wants. Sure. It's a bit more dangerous than just going to the nightclub. Mm-hmm. So Happenings pu- publishes a newsletter called What's Happening, and in it, they write... That's pretty good. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so in What's Happening, there's an editorial that reads, Some gays say to me, I have a good job and a good social life. I do not get hassled. I do not need you because I am already liberated. If you have to hide from your boss, your family, your friends, if you hate the bar you go to, if you only live for the Happenings dances, how liberated are you? Mm. So despite happenings being kind of like anti-activism, they do sort of collaborate with Gays for Equality because everyone's going to the same spaces. There's overlap in both groups. Sure. So Gays for Equality always remains smaller than happenings. Mm -hmm. They're never a huge group. But they become a major driving force in Winnipeg's queer community because a lot of groups branch off from them. Mm -hmm. They start a bunch of smaller movements. And... They initially started just trying to, like, normalize gay life in Winnipeg, but they're kneecapped almost every step of the way by just, like, the government. Right. They try to set up a phone line. Manitoba Telecom Services doesn't list it. The city of Winnipeg won't let them poster. That's weird. Um, Media won't run ads for them in the paper in case it offends viewers or readers. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's all very frustrating. But they managed to get a lot of this sort of off the ground. The phone line gets up and running. Okay. Yeah. It's a start. So there's a phone line through them and through Project Lambda, which comes a bit later, where you would call and you would get an answering machine matches that would tell you what's going on in Winnipeg. Okay. There's a list of, like, queer places to go and, like, the safe spots to go hang out. Um, there was an average of five seconds between calls when it was at its busiest. Wow. Yeah, it was busy. And then uh, once the project stops, their number is given to a group of roommates on Sherbrooke, <laughs> who then have to deal with constant phone calls. That article She's does like, make I- the free press. They're like... Just stop. <laughs> uh, like, I do not know which bars you should go to and well, which are very open. sweetly, they find out the number for the group and say, like, call them instead. Oh, that is, that is very nice. <laughs> and it's the Gays for Equality group that organizes Winnipeg's first gay pride parade. Ooh. It's not pride in the way that we know it today. The first, like, official pride parade comes up in 1987, but mm-hmm. it is a, like, gay rights parade. Sure. That takes place in the October of 1973. And it's mostly organized by Richard North. There's dances, a coffeehouse series, there's lectures, a screening of Sunday Bloody Sunday, and a whole symposium on gay rights and experiences. They have the Manitoba Department of Education, the Manitoba Human Rights Commission, uh, the Unitarian Church, and the U of M's Counseling Services presence. Mm. So, like, there's a pretty good turnout from different organizations here. Yeah. But despite all of this, this is the last Pride event held in Winnipeg until the 80s. Oh, wow. They do one big one, and then just nothing. (laughs) They're like, that was... That was a lot of work. I don't know why exactly, but yeah, probably this was a lot to organize for like a relatively new group. That's a yeah. big thing to put together, especially because North would have been 26-ish mm-hmm. at the time. He would have been young. Oh, wow. Yeah. But there's still other stuff going on. Um, 
Notably, in 1975, uh, Ted Millward calls the hotline and learns about these sort of rap sessions they're holding. They're not rapping. It's no, like talking. I know, I know what a rap <laughs> session is. Well, in case someone doesn't, I'm not talking to you okay. specifically. Also, I don't know what you know, Alex. I, yeah. Okay. You're a confusing person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what a rap session is. Okay. So for those that don't know, it's like a structured discussion, essentially, with guest speakers. Millward is at the time a middle-aged man. He's an Anglican priest and a chaplain, hmm. and he decides it's time for him to come out. Oh, yeah, good for him. So he resigns his position as chaplain and priest. He joins Gays for Equality. He uh, actually keeps working as the librarian with St. John's College at the U of M. Okay. But um, at one of these rap sessions, he meets Vogel in North, and they invite him to join in on the Council on Homosexuality and Religion, which meets in Vogel's house. Mm-hmm. And they uh, publish literature on homosexuality and religion that goes around the city. And Millward becomes one of, like, sort of the major players in this group alongside right. Vogel and North. Cool. There's a very sweet, like, letter in the Gay and Lesbian Archives. It's just, like, a, I think a birthday card to Millward that everyone signs. And there's, like, Rich and Chris in there and everything. It's very nice. Um, they publish articles in, like, Gay Mennonites and what's going on in Manitoba and stuff like that. It's really interesting stuff. But because this group was so outwardly political, both the Council on Homosexuality and Religion and the Gays for Equality, they're often at odds with happenings. Oh, interesting. So happenings isn't like apolitical. Exactly. Mm. They just can't talk about it. Not everyone wants to be openly political. Right. I guess if they want to kind of maintain their status. Exactly. They can't risk it. Yeah. And then people who are active in Gays for Equality would go to happenings. Sure. I mean, it's a social can, space. Yeah, totally. I mean, you can be a member there and still think There's not like, like a hard line. No, like, I wish I also had other places Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we deserve more than this. Yeah. But um, things aren't always easy between the groups. Notably, uh, during the charter issue with Happenings, Gays for Equality publishes an article in the Manitoban criticizing the group's willingness to stay silent. Hmm. But the article puts Happenings' charter at risk because they're talking about it. Oh. They get the charter, but in the meanwhile, Happenings tries to get the Gays for Equality's funding revoked by asking if they're really a student group at the oh U of M. Boy. And then uh, Happenings columnist and what's happening accuses the group of being jealous. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like anyone who's ever been part of any activist group has, <laughs> has seen things like this happen. Yeah. Where it's like, let's all just sabotage each, each other. <laughs> yeah, let's shoot ourselves in the foot over yeah. and over again. Um, obviously, both groups turn out Okay. Yeah. Just a little blip on the radar where right. things were a little dicey for both of them. But yeah, the activism sort of made them a lightning rod, so not everyone would go hang out with Gates for Equality. Mm-hmm. And the group also tended to skew towards men. Okay. In part because women were often involved in other movements politically at the time, because this is also like right around second wave feminism, right? There's right. other stuff going on for women to be involved in. Sure. So mostly we've talked about uh, gay men. Mm-hmm. Uh, because lesbian women sort of organize themselves differently. Right. Due to a distrust of men and because they also had their own priorities going on. Mm-hmm. So they get together at socials and often they turn up at political demonstrations together. So there's often a pretty strong lesbian contingent at like gay rights protests. Mm-hmm. But they would also create their own like physical spaces for themselves too. That were also then often dedicated to like feminist activism. Right. So the Winnipeg Lesbian Society organized about 350 marches. Wow. Oh, well, yeah, it's a lot, right? That's so many. <laughs> so some sensible sneakers for that. You have to get ready to walk. <laughs> Strong legs. Yeah. Um, so one of the demonstrations was against the Winnipeg police and Attorney General 
requesting that bookstores remove the joy of gay sex and the joy of lesbian sex from bookstores mm. after a woman who was looking for the joy of cooking opened the wrong book. <laughs> okay. Did she, though? <laughs> no, because also, if you have been to a bookstore, sex books and cooking books are never in the same section. Books also aren't organized alphabetically by title. No, they're by author. Yeah. <laughs> So this is a woman who was caught looking at a sex book and panicked Yeah, (laughs) or someone actively malicious trying to cause a very confusing problem. Yeah. So, and then in uh, 1979, the women's building is launched in Winnipeg. It is a three-story red brick building at 730 Alexander Avenue that has a number of community groups. Uh, McLean's magazine runs a feature on it and calls it one of the first buildings of its kind in Canada. So inside the building is a gym that teaches self-defense classes, including a Wendo. Is that not the thing that they do in Nancy Drew or what's the... Ooh, I can't remember. I It, it might be a made-up martial art yeah. that they do in Nancy Maybe. Drew. Anyway, they do self-defense in this gym in the building. There's about a dozen feminist groups inside, including women in trades, wages due lesbians, women's or Winnipeg Women's Liberation, wages for housework, Winnipeg Women for Welfare, and the Winnipeg Coalition Against Violence Towards Women. That's awesome. There's also the uh, Painted Ladies Theater Company, which is a writing group, a sex workers group called Beaver, and then a graphics collective called Magic. Cool. Yeah, it's very, very neat. There's also like drop-in and daycare centers. There's about a thousand women using it, many of them local residents to the neighborhood, which mm-hmm. means that, at least according to McLean's, there is a significant amount of indigenous usership in the area at the time. Mm-hmm. The vice president of the nonprofit that organized the building, Marilyn McDonald, said this isn't an affluent white woman's club. Okay. And in the basement of the building was Miss Purdy's social club, which would become Winnipeg's longest-running lesbian social space. Oh. Yeah, it closed in 2002. Okay, that's not that long. Yeah. So after the women's building closes, uh, Miss Purdy's moves to 266 Main Street. And there's one source that says it opened in the basement of the women's building, and one source that says it opened on Main Street, because why would we ever have any consistent sourcing? (laughs) But uh, Miss Purdy's holds bingo nights, they screen films, they organize concerts, they have potlucks and pool and darts. They also offer spaces for uh, female artists to perform, and there's obviously some overlap with the music scene in the lesbian scene at the mm-hmm. time. They had 800 members by uh, 1988. Wow. It's a big community. Yeah. Now, the one issue here with the women's building is that it was in the North End. Mm. So some of the richer people who might have gone to like go and donate and provide financial support weren't willing to go there. Right. Which is something that Jane Rule noticed when she was out to visit in 1984 as well. Hmm. But yeah, then Miss Purdy sticks around until uh, 2002, which is a pretty impressive run as well. Yeah. And then in the, between all of this, there are some efforts done to bridge the gaps between the gay and lesbian community outside of just making sure happenings gets off the ground. Yeah. There's a project called Project Lambda in 1977 to create a gay community center. Ted Millward's involved in organizing this, as is Dick Smith, who is a gay doctor in Winnipeg, who was pretty instrumental in providing uh, care resources and support during the HIV AIDS crisis. Wow. CBC did a really lovely article on him a couple years ago when he retired. Like, he was still a practicing doctor. Wow. (laughs) Until about four years ago. Jeez. Yeah. So Project Lambda organizes fundraisers, socials. They have a monthly bulletin on Winnipeg events called Out and About. Nice. All of the newsletter names. names. They're great at naming things. (laughs) It's all, like, top-tier marketing. Could we marshal some of these people for the new Winnipeg slogan? (laughs) That's my question. Actually, no, you know what? We should. So the most Winnipeg thing of all time happens with the newsletter and that Uh people complain that there is nothing to do in Winnipeg. (laughs) But then, if you actually go outside and, like, brave the cold and look around, there's a lot going on. Okay. So there's socials, river cruises, because there were still boats going out on the river at the time. There were still boats on the river, like... 
when I was younger. Yeah. Mostly just the one. Yeah. <laughs> there were more back then. There's concerts, there's women's only events, sports, potlucks, card nights, self-help groups, political groups. And then they also highlight events in like Brandon, Thompson, Grand Forks. Cool. So it's like there's like a dearth of things to do. It's just that people don't want to Oh, this is an extremely Winnipeg story. <laughs> we don't want to go anywhere. There's nothing happening. There's nothing to do. I haven't looked. And I, <laughs> and I refuse and to I'm be told. And I'm upset about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the newsletter doesn't gain a whole lot of traction, unfortunately. So they can't like sustain themselves. They wind up partnering with uh, Winnipeg's Oscar Wilde Memorial Society. Oh. Who play a big role in creating our sort of final stop of the night in this little tour we're going on which is giovanni's room or geos oh oh yes geos <laughs> yeah i thought nick might know what it is i, I know miss purdy's and i remember geos yeah. yeah i think i remember happenings a little bit i feel like that was like a more 90s spot yeah like just before i i turned 18 in 2001 so you're so old nick <laughs> uh, maybe 40 next year <laughs> so giovanni's room is another brainchild of richard north oh look at him yep just keeps trucking. Yeah. A lot of good ideas across the 70s and 80s. So he submits his proposal for Giovanni's room to Project Lamba, Lambda in the August in August of 1980. Geo's is sort of different from the other ideas spawned by the Gays for Equality group so far. The namesake comes from a James Baldwin novel, Giovanni's Room. Okay. Which is about an American in Paris and his feelings toward a bunch of the men in his life, including a bartender named Giovanni. Mm-hmm. And... North uses the name because Giovanni's room sort of functions as a symbol for the struggle to create a space for homosexuality. Hmm. So according to North, that space exists and it is simply up to gay people to occupy that space. And that was the goal with the project. The initial plans are a cafe with a small menu of sandwiches and coffee located upstairs so patrons would not be visible from the street level. Okay. And then just like a space people could go in just to exist. Nice. And it wasn't meant to be a commercial venture that was always made clear what North had hoped the space could fund itself and then other initiatives for Project Lambda. Mm-hmm. But also North tells the Project Lambda group that he's willing to run the space. If they're not interested, he will find someone else. Right. And there is a vote. The vote doesn't really go anywhere and it's not approved. Okay. But um, Out and About publishes a total commentary piece that people were kind of annoyed that it wasn't going anywhere. Like it okay. sounded like a good idea. Yeah. The issue was that Project Lambda wanted to buy a space and not rent, and they didn't have enough volunteers to organize the group. Okay. Which, like, fair. They're not, like, invalid concerns. But out of this comes the Oscar Wilde Memorial Society. Okay. Uh, The society's goals are twofold. It's to get a gay community center running and to offer Winnipeggers more cultural, athletic, and social ventures for gay people. Nice. Um, They publish a newsletter called Wild Times. (laughs) (laughs) It's the name of the episode, also. Uh, I like it. (laughs) And it's clear from the onset that the society wants a cafe in a bookstore, partially because the editor of Wild Times was really annoyed that there's a lack of good gay literature in Winnipeg. Well, especially if, like, the regular bookstores are freaking out about yeah, totally. gay literature. Because what you could probably find would be magazines in the back of Dominion News. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. They used to have peep shows at Dominion News. And a whole lot of bongs. Yep. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school, and this guy, Cam Olson, who was, like, a punker, and he would like, he's like, I go to the Albert. Should I you go say to... his full name? <laughs> no. He's a good guy. And uh, yeah, he like, he took me to Dominion News for the first time. He was like, he's like, we got to check this out. And he was like, show me all the pornography. This and sounds stuff. like such nice. a boy experience. It was a very boy experience. It was very nice Yeah, no of one him. ever, none of my girlfriends ever <laughs> took me to go and look at pornography. <laughs> no. No, that was not an experience I had either. <laughs> I remember it all these years later, so, you know. 
an impressionable experience for you. I, I was an impressionable youth. <laughs> now look at me. <laughs> now you're almost 40. <laughs> so North is also a part of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Society. Of course he is. He and Vogel are involved in everything. Uh-huh. Um, so he brings the idea for Giovanni's room to the society. And it gains traction. And ultimately, Project Lambda contributes ten thousand dollars to the project. The Morris Society contributes four thousand, and in nineteen eighty-two, they take possession of a space on Sherbrooke Avenue. Cool. And that becomes Giovanni's Room, the Gay Community Center. Nice. Yeah. The Mutual Friendship Society uh, Happenings also approves a monthly grant of two hundred dollars to give them counseling services. Oh, cool. And like a clinic, so they rent out space for sort of support mm-hmm. in the building as well. And then they also move in across the street a couple years later, so oh, they're really? like neighbors. <laughs> And at the time, it was sort of the only openly gay, publicly gay bar in Winnipeg because Happenings was still not, like, marketed. Right. It's like a, like, no, you said there was, like, not even a sign. No, no, you wouldn't know. Whereas uh, Giovanni's room says gay community club right on it. Wow. So it's, like, a public, public space, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty bold move still because it's still not safe. Yeah. And the funding model is kind of interesting because all club proceeds went to the attached community resource center which is run by Project Lambda. Mm-hmm. So it's all sort of going back into itself and self-sustaining, which is really interesting. Yeah. And then um, in a update from Project Lambda, an author remarked that this was a long time coming and many thought a day like this would never come. Like the response to this is overwhelmingly positive and excited. Everyone seems pretty stoked that there is a space for them. And then in 1986, Geos moves to a new location on Broadway because the building they're renting has been sold. Mm-hmm. This is why people wanted to buy the building. Right. Uh, the Clinic Community Health Center moves into the space that Geos was occupying. Okay. But their new location is at 616 Broadway. It's on street level, so it's not tucked away upstairs now. Oh. And um, Ted Millward and Chris Vogel actually write an article to The Body Politic about the move, and they say this. The new location brings a significant difference. The gay community becomes a part of the neighborhood in a way that it was not and could not be on Sherbrooke Street. With or without its sign, it is now at everybody's doorstep to be accepted or rejected along with the other residents and transients. Hmm. And then Geo's remains a sort of community mainstay until its closure in 2013. What's at that location now? I have no idea. Nick, do you want to look it up? What's the address? 616 Broadway. It's Pawn Shop. Nice. <laughs> that was not as exciting as any no. of us it's, wanted to. It's uh, Art City in the Pawn Shop there at 1616 Oh, Broadway. cool. Okay. So Art City kind of keeps that spirit alive. Yeah. The pawn shop, not so much. Well, (laughs) maybe. A pawn shop can be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, along the way, Geo's organizes fundraisers for a variety of gay charities, including uh, Geo's Cares, which is an HIV AIDS support charity. Mm -hmm. They were like a pretty pivotal group for many, many years. And that's the end of our little tour. That's all of the groups that kicked off in the 1980s. And... By we reached the mid-80s, these groups are finally working together. Nice. So, in 1981, there is a joint social to benefit happenings, the Oscar Wilde Memorial Society, and Project Lambda. And 600 people turn up. 13% of them are not from Manitoba. Wow. Like, one guy booked a ticket from Toronto the day of it to fly out and go. Yeah. Which is exciting. Huh. Yeah. So there's like this rapid growth in the 60s and the 70s and 80s towards building these spaces. And it's mostly spearheaded by a very small subset of very determined people. Yeah. Mostly Vogel and North. Which is very cool that so much of this sort of happens out of a very tiny community. 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like attitudes towards, like, LGBT people yeah. have changed so rapidly. Like, even, even over the course of my life. Yeah, totally. And it can seem like, as someone who's not part of that community, it can seem like that just sort of, like, happened. happened. <laughs> no, but it takes work yeah and i have not even touched on like half of what happened in the 70s and 80s there is a tv show called coming out that aired on like public access television yeah there's uh protests there's a lot of other stuff going on even like the 80s and late 90s especially with the aids crisis Mm -hmm. it is like a really rich history and i'm excited to do more episodes on it as we have the time yeah in our increasingly busy schedule (laughs) But I thought I would end this episode off with uh, Jane Rule's final thoughts on Winnipeg circa 1983. Oh, do tell. Uh, Winnipeg is a city of hard social realities. Gays have to endure the pious venom of the righteous and queer-bashing hoodlums. They have to deal with divisiveness among themselves among on feminist and racial issues. But beleaguered and isolated as they can seem, in service and love, they support a community which provides help for those in need, educational programs, a place to relax or celebrate a warm welcome for strangers, and it is an accomplishment to be envied by larger cities in Canada. I heard it before, I went, and I can confirm it now. Go to Winnipeg for the people. Ah. <laughs> That's a better slogan. <laughs> Happy Pride. We're renaming it now. Get out of the way, economic development, Winnipeg. <laughs> That was really lovely. Thank it was you, a nice, Sabrina. Yeah. Thanks for coming along this little ride with me. It was fun to do. Yeah. Um, in our episode notes, our episode notes and on the website, I'll post a link to the Rainbow Resource Center. That is actually Gays for Equality today. They've changed their name. Oh. Same group, different name. How neat. Uh, and they provide community and support and resources to Winnipeg's queer community today. Mm-hmm. So support them if you're able to. Um, stay tuned for Alex and I's interview with Danielle from the Brandon Museum and Archives. Oh, that was so fun. <laughs> it was really fun. We talked about a little pewter cup that made a very long journey to England and back. Yeah. We had a great time. And you can check out additional sources, pictures, and other episodes on onegreathistory.wordpress.com. You can check us out on social media at Facebook and Instagram at One Great History. We are on Twitter at the number one great history. If you want to buy merch, we're on... Uh, Redbubble at redbubble.com forward slash one great history. We've got t shirts and building designs, all kinds of fun stuff. And you can support us on Patreon. Please. <laughs> Please give us <laughs> money. <laughs> uh, the ep- episode for June is going to be talking about oral histories and cool. sources and stuff like that. I thought you put our academic hats on Ooh, again. Fun. So you can hear us actually use our degrees for something. I'll have to dust off the old master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping you'll talk a lot more than me. <laughs> but thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next month. Hey, guess what? What? Next month, who's hosting? Nick's hosting next month. <laughs> Nick's in charge. Yeah, it's a Nick episode. So yeah. uh, I The will... first and maybe the last. <laughs> <gasps> no, every July. Oh, I like that. I'm calling it. Yeah. It's your summer break. Nice. Um, We've earned a vacation. I'm going to give you a hint as to who it's about. (laughs) There's a community center named after them and a theater. That's it. You could probably figure it out from that. I think everyone's put it together. (laughs) Chris Walby. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Well, my name is Danielle. Um, I am on the board of the Brandon General Museum and Archives, as well as on the Collections Committee. Um, I'm born and raised in Brandon. I've been here forever. I don't think you could 
pull me out kicking and screaming. Like I <laughs> love my city with all my heart. Um, and I mean, it was back in January of 2020, I decided I wanted to get involved with the museum. So I contacted whoever was running the Instagram page at the time and just said, you know, I'm curious if I could do some volunteering. I have no idea what that entails. And um, yeah, it started from there. I joined the collections committee with it's me and my two men <laughs> um, board, who's, who was also a board member before and Doug, who's they've, well, Doug has been in the area since the beginning of time. And uh, Gord is originally from Saskatchewan, but has lived here for long enough that he calls Brandon home now. So it's just me and my men every Saturday morning. And yeah, it's like my favorite part of the week. <laughs> well, it's nice to see other like young people in museums because yeah, I feel like often it's sort of like longtime residents and, and that kind of people yeah. who absolutely you need as well, but it's uh, exactly to have, and it's, have us as well. Yeah, no, and it's really fun because it's like we're the three of us are from three completely different generations. Um, so the conversations that we have, like the the you know, the things in Brandon that I remember being a certain way, Gord remembers them completely different. Yeah. And then Doug remembers them originally. So it's, and I mean, he's not, he's not that old. He's not actually <laughs> the beginning of time, but his family has been in the area since 1879. Oh, so wow. Wow. yeah, I'll, I'll get more on that as well. I've got some information on his family just because it kind of ties in. Um, but yes, it's very, our conversations are always fun and it's just a fun place to be. And so I decided to join the board because I thought there's some things that we could work on, we could change, and what better way to change it than from the inside? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Cool. And I will, like, your social media presence is really good for, like, a local museum. Yeah, that was um, all credit to Allie, who was the uh, museum administrator when I first started. She has gone on since then, um, but we have another, a new guy now, who's, his name is Keith, and he's equally fantastic. So I think the museum's going to be in good hands for a long time. Oh, good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like my, my passion. My, um, <laughs> I love my museum. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. And um, what kind of collections do you guys have at the Brandon Museum? Well, our mandate is specifically Brandon and surrounding area. Um, that being said, obviously, if there's stuff that we have in our collection that could be better suited in say Carberry Museum or Boys of Bean or something like that, we can pass those things on. Um, but, oh, sorry, I don't know if you lost me there for a second. Oh, sorry, my phone. You're back. My phone. <laughs> um, but yeah, so specifically anything to do with Brandon and very close surrounding area is what we do. Um, so anywhere from, you know, we've got, stuff to do with the Canada games that were here in 97 or we have the um original city hall like where the all the aldermen and the mayor would have sat during city hall meetings we have that all those tables and the chairs um so we have that kind of setup as its own little area we have tons of pictures and postcards and um so much stuff <laughs> Um, and then we also have the B.J. Hales Natural History Museum, which is um, oh, oh, taxidermy. I was going to say stuffed animals, but not, <laughs> not incorrect. Yeah, <laughs> a little different. A little the, different. The, more, the more macabre 
variety of stuffed animals. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we've got, um, you know, all we've got birds and we've got a little moose with one ear and we've got a polar bear and we've got so many. And then of course, Stella, you cannot forget about Stella, the little coyote. Stella. There's a little, I believe she's a coyote. I feel like I will be very much told if she is not a coyote. <laughs> um, but she's got, she's got some crazy eyes, but she's, she's, yeah. If you look back on our Instagram page, you'll see Stella. And I'll you'll see know. Stella. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I, so. I also I have I have some taxidermy stories I could tell I feel like that's a museum worker <laughs> yeah it's definitely I mean I was never interested in taxidermy I mean I don't have any of my own but it's definitely something you know if I'm in an antique store now or a vintage store and I see it I'm interested in it yeah but it's yeah it's a niche <laughs> which is fine it's, it's a very cool niche I think yeah. The museum in my hometown got a snowy owl once as a donation. Ooh. And like, it was very cool, but the curator liked to move it around into oh. different spots. <laughs> so I'd come in for work and I would turn on the lights and there would just be a big owl with its arms out and it would scare me every day. Well, when you come into our museum, we have a, a bear that has like a platter and at some point a top hat was put on him and so he's right behind the front desk and as soon as you walk in he's just like hey how's it going <laughs> and the first couple of times that sure got me <laughs> but I'm used to him now <laughs> but yeah so it's, it's taxidermy is fun <laughs> um yeah did you um have a specific uh collection piece that you wanted to tell us about today yeah, um, the collection piece that I had thought would be, it's probably the most, not the most exciting, but one of the more recent exciting additions to our collection is, um, it's a souvenir cup. It's a, I believe it's pewter, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and it's a souvenir cup from somewhere between 1900 to uh, 1908. We're not sure on the exact age of it, but it's somewhere in there. Um, it, it was donated by Tom Jupp, who uh, he actually lives in London the, in the UK. And he had contacted us back in um, May of 2021. Um, and he had said, you know, I had this cup, it was my mom's and she had passed away. Uh, but I've had it in, in my home for a while. And, you know, it's to do with Brandon. So I'm curious if you would if you'd like it for your collection. So of course we all freaked out. <laughs> we were so excited um, because it's it's so cool to have something from Brandon so far away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we were able to, um, you know, contact, like speak with him and we were able to get it uh, shipped over and we got it later in the year last year. And it was, it's, yeah, I don't even know how big it is. I think it's about three and a half inches tall. Um, maybe I'll explain a little bit of what it looks like. Yeah, um, tell us. So it's, yeah, it's about three and a half inches tall. It's, I've done a little bit of research on it in general. I wasn't able to find another one. I was actually able to find that there is one or two versions of it from Winnipeg. Um, with Winnipeg, um, I'm saying I'm a lot. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's fine. We can edit some of these out. Don't worry. You might have to. No <laughs> big deal. Um, but yeah, so it has what's the word I'm thinking of notable notable on it so it was 
the ones that I've seen from Winnipeg are from Germany. This one specifically is from Research Jewelers. Um, so Research has been kind of a, a staple in Brandon. They've been around since Brandon was incorporated in 1882. So as long as we've been a city, they've been a jeweler and we still have them. They're still in the shoppers mall. Oh, wow. um, so there's a little stamp on the bottom that says it's from Research, and it has notable um, locations in Brandon from the time period, which uh, I don't believe any of them are still there, but oh, really, oh, neat. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's interesting. And I mean, myself, I've been in the museum for long enough. I have an idea of what was where and when it was there, but you know, for somebody who is just getting into Brandon history, it's very interesting to go, oh my gosh, there's an apartment building there now, but there was a church there. Like it's, yeah. I find that very, the, the most interesting about this city is how things are always changing. And because mm -hmm. we the city so fast, it, it, we were never a town. We were instantly a city. <laughs> um, like I, I even wrote down here. So Tom Jeff's mom, Marion Birch was born in Brandon in 1900. And so when she was born, there was about 5,500 people in Brandon. They had just built an, um, a new hospital, which is where she was born. And then within five years, the population had doubled to about 10,400. That's a oh, huge amount of wow. people in yeah. five years. And that's why Brandon was never a town. We were never a village. We were just instantly a city. Um, so that is just very interesting to me. But uh, yeah, that's interesting that it's like at that time, it was like, these are the places that define this place. And now those are, you know, totally, uh, totally gone. It's other things that define, define Brandon now, right? Exactly. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, so she, so she was born in Brandon in the original, like the Brandon General Hospital, um, which were it, a couple things have changed with that since then. Um, but so she was born in Brandon, but she was raised until 1908 in Rounthwaite, which is about 30 kilometers south, southeast of Brandon. Um, and that's actually where the connection to Doug on the collections committee comes in is because his family has been um, farming in Rounthwaite since 1879, oh, still wow. farming on the same land, uh, their farms, wow. Park Farms. And they do like organic grass-fed beef, and they've had the same land for. I mean, it's maybe changed a bit, but they've had the same land since 1879, which is super cool. Um, and so Doug's grandfather and Tom Jupp's grandfather, I guess, they were both listed in a book detailing um, the first settlers in that area, um, which was very cool. And when we learned about Tom Jupp and how he had said his mom was Marion Birch, immediately set off a light bulb in, in Doug's head and went, that name is really familiar. He did some digging and we actually have a photo of Doug's grandmother riding in a horse and buggy with, it could be Tom Jupp's mom or it could be another sibling, but there's two Birch children in the carriage. Cool. So they knew each other way back then. <laughs> And then he just happens to donate the cup to our museum. So we thought that was really cool. Yeah, reconnected like whatever, 150 years yeah. later. Yeah, small world. And it's 
they've they've emailed back and forth and Doug has sent them pictures and found as much information that he can so that's that's really cool but so that's kind of it's a very small world <laughs> yeah no kidding but, I feel like yeah. especially especially in Manitoba I mean yeah especially in Manitoba it's everybody knows somebody everybody knows everybody through somebody it's six degrees yeah. of separation yeah. and it's so true and some of the ways that it comes about are always shocking. It's like you can't believe that, you know, these people, their families knew each other so long ago, but which I mean, really in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long, but in our <laughs> times, it's a long yeah. time. But um, yeah, so that was cool. Um, the cup has, like I said, it has the notable locations of Brandon. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I'm supposed to actually be talking like if you guys should be asking me questions or if I'm just word vomiting to you <laughs> no if you want it no as no long as no you have stuff to say that's what I, I do, do. <laughs> <laughs> okay um so then I'll if just it goes kind of... like if it goes super long we can always edit it down or whatever but like yeah okay. I mean tell us you know it's sure. always better to have more more than not enough totally <laughs> a two-minute segment <laughs> um but yeah so I'll kind of explain what's on the cup then and yep. I wrote a little blurb about the significance of each location. Um, So the first one is the original Brandon City Hall, which was built in about 1892. um, And it was located present day where Princess Park is. So the location is, there hasn't been another building built there, but there is a park. Um, As if I remember correctly from Doug telling me, I believe there used to be an opera house on the fir- on the top level um, and then the city hall on the main floor. And then on the outside of the building, there was like market stands. It was like a market area for people to come and sell their fruits and vegetables and whatever else they wanted to sell there. Um, so the original building was demolished in 1971, um, which then made way for our new City Hall, which is now, it's not in the original location, it's a little bit further down the road, but um, it's very much built in the 1970s style, yeah. not the 1892 <laughs> style, um, which it's is a long funny. time for City Hall to stick around though. It is, yeah, and I mean 1971, they went on a rampage it seems, because there's yeah. it's a theme, unfortunately, of 1971 buildings coming down. Um, the Winnipeg just looked that different. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it was about the seventies that we were like no more historical buildings. Well, yeah, I have no idea why. It's like the seventies and the nineties was just let's just wreck it. <laughs> we're just we're gonna go with modern and forget historical buildings. But um, yeah, so that was the 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 one of the first images on the the cup. The second is the St. Paul's. Presbyterian Church, which was open from 1901 until 1986. So this uh, church was designed by Walter H. Schillinglaw, who was a very prominent architect in Brandon. Um, he also designed a couple other buildings. It's I'm not 100% sure if he possibly kind of took some <laughs> plans from other people and said that they were his. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe that's what I heard, but... <laughs> I don't have proof, so allegedly this is what happened. 
Um, but yeah, so the church was built in 1901, um, was the Presbyterian church until 1925 when they joined the, the uh, United Church, becoming St. Paul's United Church. Uh, and then further from there, they then also united with, united, amalgamated <laughs> with the first United Church, and then they became the Central United Church. Um, so that original building also isn't there anymore, but it's not because of 1971, <laughs> it's because it actually burnt down in 1986, uh, which is unfortunate, um, but they did rebuild on the same site. Uh, so that building is still there, um, but, but unfortunately, January of this year, the, con the Congression decided that they were, like, they just didn't have enough people anymore, so they've yeah. disbanded, and actually this past Sunday was their last service. Um, so the building is now up for sale, but yeah, that's, un that's unfortunate. Uh, I'm not sure who will be taking over it, but it's, it's, yeah, like it's very much, it's an eighties, nineties building. So it's not, you know, too yeah. bad. It is too bad that the churches are going under, but we have a lot of those in Brandon that are getting to be empty. Mm. Um, but yeah, so then the second, I guess the third location, um, would be, the central school or new central school depending on who you ask because there was also a old central school um, so this building was around from 1891 to 1971 uh, so central school or, or new central school um, was on Lauren Avenue between 5th and 6th street it was it replaced the old central school which was in the 100 block of 10th street so the old central school was Brandon's first school um, it opened right in 1882 when we became a city, and uh, but it was for Protestant children only. Oh. Catholic children went to another school. <laughs> they went to uh, Saint Saint Joseph's Covenant School, which was is by um, Saint Augustine School, which is I believe it's a Christian school. I've never been there, so I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so the population was growing so quickly that by the time the old central school, they had only had it around for about two years, they had to build an addition onto it because it was already too small. That addition is actually still there. You can see it from oh. 11th Street, kind of the 10th, 10th Street back lane. You can still see it there. So that's really cool. Um, but it was built you know it was built and it was running out of space they were running out of space so quickly um so by the time they outgrew it it was the 1890s so they had to build a new school already which is why new central school was built and then new central school was used until 1970 um and then at that point i guess they decided it was not good enough i'm not sure yeah. <laughs> um and they the students that were attending New Central School were transferred to Brandon Collegiate, which is now known as Earl Oxford School. And then in 1971, the uh, New Central School was demolished because, you know, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> um, so then the fourth uh, spot on there is the First Methodist Church, which was open 1899 to 1971. <laughs> um, so it was the Methodist Church until 1925. They then became the first United Church. They continued that way until 1969 when they amalgamated with St. Paul's United, which is was St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. They're right, they're right across the street from each other. So they eventually got together. <laughs> um, and they became one 
And I believe that the Methodist church kind of went into St. Paul's and then St. Paul's was sold shortly after, demolished. Um, and now there's a, an apartment building there. Uh, and yeah, and then the last uh, item on the, the cup is just a harvesting scene because that's, that's yeah. what we do around here. Whether it's we manage you know, it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but the cup was shipped from London um, and we got it earlier last year, well, I guess later last year. And uh, yeah, so it's one of the comments that Tom Jupp wrote a, wrote a note to us when he sent us the cup. Um, he, what did he say? He had a really cool quote. He had said, I'm happy that it's being accepted into the BGMA. The return journey to Brandon will complete a circular trip of over 11,200 miles out, over up to 120 years. Not bad for a little cup. Oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> <That's> cute. <laughs> I, like, I just love Tom Jupp. So sweet. Incredible oh, the sweet. math on the trip, too. Yeah, I know. I'm like, and then I'm thinking, should I calculate that to kilometers? I'm like, no, if Tom said it, it's whatever. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's our little cup. And I mean, it's to some people, it's just a cup, but it has a lot of good history on it. And it has all these cool locations. And we're very happy to have it. It's very cool. And you can probably, you can make a parallel between like the souvenir Starbucks mugs you get now that have like the human rights museum right? on it. Oh, <laughs> totally. Right? Well, yeah, I mean. There's less churches on then. them now, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> probably not what you want to have on a Starbucks cup. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, that was what people did in the turn of the century, right? Like they, they went to church. That was their thing. That was yeah. their social. And that was important to them. So it makes sense to put so many I mean, we had so many churches, every, every town and city had so many different churches mm -hmm. because there's so, so many options. <laughs> there were eight in my hometown at one point when I was a kid. Oh there my gosh. Like 2000 people, people, people were in your hometown. So 2000. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and where did you grow up? Sorry. Uh, Morris. In Morris. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of churches everywhere. And I mean, it's, yeah. and it's nice to see some of them are are being repurposed and used and you know you don't want yeah. to see them be wasted but there's definitely a, a lot of real estate <laughs> just <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> but yeah yeah thanks so much for telling us it's a really fun little story in a cool yeah, I, history yeah and it's a really cool you know roundabout uh, yeah the cup went on a good little trip over a long yeah. period of time <laughs> I'm surprised it never got lost in the move she moved back to her her dad I guess was originally from England I believe um I yeah Tom's mom and so she moved back to England in 1930 so that's how Tom ended up there but yeah sorry um, do you want to <laughs> <laughs> tell us um where we can find you guys yeah, um, so we're on. I guess I meant online, but also in person, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, where you can find us if you're wanting to come into Brandon, um, we are at 19 9th Street. Um, so, we're actually in an old, the old MTS building. Um, so, where there used to be actual, like, what's the word I'm thinking of? Operators. Like switchboards and, oh, and switchboard cool. people. Yeah. Um, so, that's really, it's, it's a great building. Um, 
So we're at 19th Street. You can find us online at the BGMA on Instagram and the Brandon General Museum and Archives on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is like the best time ever. This has been a dream come true. <laughs>